love. Some would say it took a backseat when the pandemic forced us apart. As a family-run and proudly Canadian-owned company, Charm Diamond Centres saw the need to bring us together with tales of love and created the Canadian Love Map podcast. Since then, we've shared hundreds of real, uplifting stories that prove love conquers all. So thank you for listening. We couldn't do it without you. And remember, love starts here. In order for me to truly embrace and accept that this was my next chapter of my life, I had to take a huge risk. And so it couldn't just be about the chemistry of this good looking guy. I had to realize that this was in fact a once in a lifetime opportunity. I could take a risk. I could think outside the box. I could be uh, uncertain and be okay with that. Welcome to the Canadian Love Map. I'm Nancy Regan. This week's love story belongs to Rick and Amanda. And in a way, it's just another example of the many types of love we celebrate on this podcast. But this episode also happens to feature a hero and icon. Known internationally as the Man in Motion, Rick Hansen won the hearts of Canadians over 35 years ago when he circumnavigated the globe in his wheelchair, raising awareness and money for spinal cord research. As it happens, on that legendary journey, Rick lost his own heart to his physiotherapist. And Amanda's contribution to the cause cannot be overstated. As a member of Rick's core team, she played a vital role in keeping him going physically, emotionally, and psychologically. They have continued to be an extraordinary team over the years since, and their commitment to the cause has changed the lives of countless Canadians and inspired us all. I can't wait for you to meet Rick and Amanda Hansen. Amanda and Rick, I'm so excited to talk to you. I've been waiting for this for her a while. How are you doing out there on the West Coast? We're drying out. No, <laughs> no we're still afloat. Let's put it that way. It's been a tough month for you guys. It's been really challenging. And, you know, we personally have not been as affected as so many others. So, I mean, we count our blessings, but we're heartbroken for the many who've lost their homes and just the devastation. Yeah, we've had quite an interesting and challenging year here. It's been, you know, in the summertime, we've had these huge heat extremes, you know, forest fires mm -hmm. and heat domes. And then here now in the fall, we've had the big rains and atmospheric rivers and <laughs> cyclone bombs and oh. whatever the heck they call them these days during global warming. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty intense, but I'm glad that you've fared well. I've so... I've been so looking forward to this conversation, and I was thinking as I was driving here today that so much of your story has love woven through it. So, you know, I was I almost was humming the song All My Love's All My Life's a Circle, but your <laughs> love story seems to be more like an octagon to me because there are so many sides that are love-based. And I want to start with fishing. Because it seems to me, Rick, that um, the reason you decided to go on that weekend fishing trip was because of the love your dad had cultivated with you for fishing as a kid. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Yeah, there's no question. That was a huge part of my life. Uh, earliest memories, hanging around my dad and grandfather on adventures and really helped shape my sense of being uh, an advocate for, you know, my own joy and passion, but build relationships and solve problems and challenges along the way. And every trip was an adventure and I just loved it. So tell us about that trip when you were 15. Well, we decided to go off on a little fishing trip to uh, the west coast of British Columbia right after I graduated from grade 10 and we were hitchhiking back from that fishing trip and me and a buddy got in the back of this pickup truck. It it crashed on a corner of a rough gravel uh, washboard turn and uh, rolled over and, uh, and I was trapped on the inside of the roll and it threw me back first against a big steel toolbox and it broke my back and uh, shattered uh, everything, uh, hopes and dreams, as I learned that I would be paralyzed and that that would be permanent. Now, this is Canadian history, really, but I'm just going to go through it a little bit just for people who aren't familiar with your story. You were already a phenomenal athlete, so this changed your life even more dramatically than it might for most. Is that fair to say? Yeah, there's no question, you know, an everyday Canadian kid with Canadian values and even biases and perceptions at that time about disability. And all of a sudden, now I had one, didn't know anything about it, thought all of my hopes and dreams were shattered and uh, had no idea what life would be like from that point on. It uh, was a real, uh, real struggle in those early days, learning about what was possible and trying to reframe my life so that I had hope and eventually, uh, you know, being able to continue to pursue the passions, but just a little differently. Tell me about the path that took you to Amanda. Well, one of those real passions for me was being an athlete. I, you know, I lived sports and, you know, didn't know much about what was possible in those early days after the injury until I heard about Paralympic sports and, and specifically uh, wheelchair basketball and track and got myself engaged in that discipline and over a period of time rose to the top of my game uh, at a global level and and was preparing for the Boston Marathon for a repeat championship test driving a brand new wheelchair uh, down a hill going 70 kilometers an hour and crashed it and dislocated my left shoulder. They sent me to a rehab center and and the doctor who was introducing me to my physio paraded me into the physio clinic at that point. And all I saw was a row of curtains uh, with a variety of patients and physios in this rehab center. And there was one physio at the back that popped out uh, for a second. And I, my, my eyes caught her <laughs> immediately. And I, I went, oh my. <laughs> and, I, and I, but then of course there was a line of other physios that I thought my luck was, uh, you know, facing uh, and taking me to. And my doctor passed each one of them and eventually introduced me to that one who caught my eye. And I thought, oh wow, this is the best injury I ever did have. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is where we switch to Amanda's perspective in the he said she said game. <laughs> Amanda, take me to that moment. What did you know about him when you encountered him first? Okay, well, to give context, so the rehab center we're talking about is GF Strong Rehab, and it, at the time, was a center that uh, worked with people who were newly injured, spinal cord injured, 
We also had a, a neuro department. Uh, we had arthritis. Uh, so there were head injuries. There was Parkinson's, MS, and then spinal cord injury. And a lot of the spinal cord injured were young uh, people doing high-risk activities. And um, I was primarily a therapist on the spinal cord block. But as well, I had been spending time working with some young new athletes, so newly injured who wanted to get back into sports. So I was doing that on the side, um, sort of as a volunteer position. And I also had some sports medicine background. So ultimately when Rick had to come back into the center and, and again, he had already been living his life and he was very independent. However, when you are in a wheelchair and you only have the use of one arm, your options, um, become much more limited. So they said, you're going to have to come back into the rehab, which I know at the time was not what Rick wanted. But um, because of, I guess, the combination of things that I had already been doing, uh, and I must have had a slot free for a new patient. So um, he ended up being my, my patient. And we still called them patients back then. But uh, yeah, so he came in and he had to be a he had to be a resident of the facility. He had to stay in until that shoulder was healed up, healed up before he'd go back home. What was your first impression of him? I knew of him. And yeah, I should mention, I did know of him because being in that world of uh, spinal cord injury and wheelchair sports, he was an icon. Mm -hmm. uh, he was an, an athlete that uh, we would often use as an example of, you know, this is what's possible. And so when he was able to come in and meet me and also meet some of the other newly injured, it was kind of one of this, one of these moments in time where you go, wow, is this really happening? So I was struck by him because I knew of him and I knew of his incredible um, success as an athlete and the fact that he had endured a spinal injury and was living a very productive life, has gone to university. So um, I was probably a little starstruck myself. Um, and, but, and, but also he was cocky. He, he came in cocky. He came in hot. <laughs> okay. Tell me more about that, please. <laughs> yeah, the cocky with his nose busted up and uh, tooth uh, through his lip and oh, but left he, arm and shoulder. But you were you were pretty good looking. I'll give you that. And you know, and he just sort of came in with all the bravado of a young athlete, and uh, he just saw this injury as a minor setback. But it was a pretty significant dislocation of his shoulder plus nerve damage. So it wasn't going to be a walk in the park. Uh, to coin a phrase. Uh, but uh, no, he just, um, he exuded that confidence that you see in a young 20 something uh, athlete uh, who's only past injury known success. So that's fascinating though, because I think of uh, the prior time, Rick, when you had gotten injured at first at 15, the psychological journey you had to make to get to that positive place Amanda's talking about was as, you know, as uh, I'm sure momentous as your man, the man in motion tour, you had a long journey to go psychologically, didn't you? This was another Everest, you know, uh, that decade uh, was an incredible journey, uh, like an amazing amount of work and struggle, pain, suffering and, and growth. And fortunately, you know, you're surrounded by role models and opportunity to, you know, to challenge yourself. And it, it was in many ways, you know, inescapable. So, yeah, I, by that time, I really did feel like I was on top of the world. And yet that injury, uh, you know, it was the, the setting was here I was, you know, just just on the verge of 
going to the Paralympic Games in 84, uh, really focused on my, my track and wheelchair marathon. It was, uh, it was everything to me. And all of a sudden, you know, I had this injury and, and it was really uncertain. Doctors were advising me to, you know, abandon the expectations. And I'd been starting to declare, you know, to everybody that I was going to wheel around the world. So there was a lot of fear and doubt cooking inside. And every time, every day that it was delayed, my recovery created new fears and new concerns. When did he tell you about this plan to wheel around the world, Amanda? Well, he waited past the intake interview, fortunately. <laughs> and, and we just were at that point just talking about the shoulder and how I sort of foresaw managing the injury. I could tell right off the bat that he was going to want to push it. And so um, I was a textbook therapist to a point, but I was also young and enthusiastic and I was willing to, to do whatever it took to get him back and get him back competing. So that was our initial set of goals. But I think, you know, he came in on a Friday and by the Monday probably is when he told me about, we, we fleshed out a plan and then it was, okay, so I've got this summer, I've got to compete and there's gonna be a, an exhibition um, race in the LA Olympics, so that's a big deal. And oh, and really what I'm planning and trying to train for, I'm in the process of that is to wheel around the world. So. Um, yeah, I was, I was shocked, but again, it was all in his delivery, right? It was just like, yeah. this is what's going to happen and, uh, you can get on with the plan or I'll probably go elsewhere. So I yeah. figured, okay, I'll, I'll team up with you and we'll see what we can do. So was his enthusiasm so contagious that you just sort of climbed on board or was there a part of you that said, okay, he might be a little delusional if he thinks this is possible? You know, it's funny. People ask me that. And I don't think I ever registered that I thought he was delusional. Wow. I, I, I did. Um, I had great concerns about whether that was possible for sure. And as well, um, I, you know, my, my caution would have been the standard treatment protocol. And, but as soon as I realized that this was a go, no matter what I said, um, more importantly, what I did was going to make the difference. And, and as well, um, I was always thinking about whether I would make a mistake and I would push him too far because of this, that did weigh on me. I thought, gosh, just my luck. I'm going to be the one to, to turtle the whole thing. Right. right. So, um, I, I didn't want that to happen, but uh, it didn't take long. We had a really great energy and synergy from the get go. And I was um, I was excited at the possibility of doing something out of the norm uh, of my day-to-day -day work. And I'll be honest, too, I had, you know, a number of young kids who were spinal cord injured at that time, young men. And I could see what energy Rick's presence was bringing to him yes. being there. And there was just a whole catalytic series of events that went on over the course of the time that he was at the center and um, it was almost like a whirlwind for me, but it was exciting and it was challenging, but it was absolutely the right direction for me to go at that point in time in my life as well. This podcast is brought to you by Charm Diamond Centers, Canada's largest family-owned jewelry store. 
They are proud to be putting love on the map. And the staff at Charm Diamond Centers are thrilled to be a part of your love story too. So visit CharmDiamondCenters.com or one of your local stores. Love starts here. You know, I'm listening to you talking and I, I'm having the St. Elmo's Fire song play in my ear or in my head. It really, I, I feel that energy and the passion mm-hmm. just from what you're saying. Really amazing. Yeah. So uh, where did it go from there? Uh, Rick, let's talk about your actual launch of, of the tour, the Man in Motion tour. Yeah, well, of course, you can imagine here we are in this intensive environment, Amanda and I, and uh, there was a lot of chemistry and, uh, and, you know, uh, and intimacy, you know, really sharing your fears, um, wondering how far could you push yourself without blowing up. And Amanda was my, my bedrock for that governance, governance, you know, uh, of where, where was that, was that line? And she, uh, she really listened carefully to some of those fears. And I really, you know, found myself falling for her uh, in, in a very, um, a very uh, deep uh, way that was uh, kind of surprising and wasn't uh, just the physical chemistry. There was uh, some a lot of substance to our common endeavor. I don't think that was the question she just asked you. I, I know, <laughs> I'm but I love where he's going. I'm I love where up. he's going. <laughs> Amanda, let him talk. Because I have to, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute here. <laughs> you have to know that by the time we got to the launch of the tour, there we, go. <laughs> um, we had... Um, yeah, we had uh, a relationship, and so there were not just sparks, but you had a relationship, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and and also, but a relationship that was about to end, right? When he took off, and a, and a, that was the plan. Yeah, and also a tremendous success because she 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 got me back to to qualify for that Olympic uh, history, and also to win, um, you know, uh, two gold medals at the Paralympic Games, uh, and you know, in track and marathon. And, and so, you know, this was a pretty amazing, uh, just an unbelievable um, relationship at so many different levels. And she was now on the medical committee to help me prepare for the tour. But we were going to say goodbye. Um, we were really clear in my mind the night before <laughs> that we were we had been dating and uh, we were we were very clear in my mind, that she was going to spend that first day with us and be in the motorhome. And so uh, all the people coming out in the ceremonies and, you know, I'm I'm wheeling out the door of the little gymnasium where we had the ceremony and there's a whole big throng of people, crowds cheering. And, and I'm sort of seeing all these friendly faces and some strangers as I'm going through the procession and and thinking Amanda's in the motorhome, and all of a sudden I see her there waving with somebody uh, with a little tear coming down her eye, and I'm just going like, "What are you? What?" You know, and I kind of stop, and like, uh, and I said to her, "Like, get in the motorhome," and 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 she just sits there waving, and I'm going like, and then I have to leave because the motorhome is now right up my back, and uh, it was now looking a bit awkward, and so I said, "Get in the motorhome," and I kept going. I had no idea what had happened at that moment until 15 kilometers down the road and we took a break and and all of a sudden Amanda popped out and she was in the motorhome <laughs> that was a pivotal moment in our relationship talk about a relief for you uh, so great Amanda was it that you just wanted to be in the crowd 
feeling no, that? No, no, no. We, we'd had a miscommunication oh. on that one because I, I, <laughs> I was not planning to come on that first day. He's got it completely wrong. I think he was just a little too wired about the whole getting it ready and getting it going and then launching. But uh, no, because I was there. I was there with my cousin and I, dri- I had drove my car. So I, I was not just, you know, taking off. So I, it was a split decision for sure. I could see that he was very upset and, you know, that he had expected me to get in the motorhome clearly with his words. And, um, so I just tossed my car keys to my cousin and I jumped in the motorhome. I thought, what the heck, I'll figure out how to get home later. (laughs) But that's it. You were just going for the day at that point. You weren't meant to be going on the tour. Were you? No, no, not at all. No. Okay. So, so when did that change? I've, I've heard this story from Rick before and I love it. It's one of my, my favorite stories of all time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, so day, day two, after we said goodbye, that was a long, hard day and a lot harder than I thought a lot of, a lot of wind and rain and hills. And it was a struggle just to finish the day and Amanda said goodbye. And that was a tough goodbye. And the next day, another one, and without Amanda. And then by day three, uh, we were in Seattle, the other side of Seattle, and and uh, my wrists were starting to hurt, and I was getting tendonitis. And describe, and I, Rick. Uh, why don't you describe exactly what you were doing for anyone who's not familiar with your tour? Mm-hmm. Describe exactly what was happening, what you were having to do. Yeah, wheeling uh, 113 kilometers a day by wheelchair. Uh, which was in two wheeling seg- three wheeling segments of uh, almost 40 kilometers uh, each segment. And, you know, you wake up at 5.30 in the morning and you, you're wheeling until 9 o'clock at night, pretty much three days on, one day off, three days on, one day off for, you know, what was basically two years. And, and so, you know, that pace seemed reasonable and we'd train for it, but... I just hadn't anticipated that weather and, uh, and, and I didn't adjust. I was so stubbornly focused on meeting the exact pace. I didn't give with the conditions and got myself into trouble right away. And so there I was like, you know, day three on the phone to Amanda saying, Hey, I'm in trouble here. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to need you to come and, uh, and take care of this tendonitis for a couple of days to try to get me over the hump because just a few more days down the road, we're going to have to summit the Siskiyou Mountains between Oregon and California, and it's about a 4,900-foot summit, and I don't know if my wrists can handle it. So you were talking about a couple of days, but really you were planning a kidnapping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a full offensive attack on me there. <laughs> um, so Amanda, from your perspective, what was what was that ask like when he said come out for a couple of days? Uh yeah, so I realized he was in trouble and I literally when he says you got to listen to my wrist and he put it up to the phone and I could hear it squeaking and anyone knows tendonitis when it gets to the squeaking phase, you know, you you've got it pretty bad. So um, I, I really, I remember being on that phone and, um, and thinking what, oh, what am I going to do here? So we, we'd set it up that, um, I had a whole operating procedure manual left with the guys cause it was the guys on the road mm-hmm. and, um, and said, you know, do icing and do this, do that. And if this happens, do this and that, but this was obviously going to require a physio. 
And uh, we had thought that we would get physios to pop in every now and then. I was going to be on a roster, a couple of other friends of ours, Clyde Smith, and cover them over the course of the, the tour. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I went back to my, my boss and said, look, I've got a situation. Can I take my two weeks vacation early? And she said, yeah, great. No, we've got your back. And uh, so I figured two weeks I should get them under control. So I flew down with my ultrasound unit in my hand and uh, arrived. And I was um, completely shocked at, as to how banged up he was. And the crew were all shell-shocked as well. They didn't know what to do. They said, oh, thank goodness you've come because we didn't know what to do with them. And uh so we worked through it over the two weeks and uh, I, I could see what was happening here. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't ready to just give up my life. Like yeah. I had a great job and I had a apartment and I had a cat. And You had to drop you know, everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was just one of those, what we had this really, well, first of all, it wasn't just that Rick and I had to come to an understanding because if I arrive and now decide to stay, what is that going to do that a dynamic of our relationship? Right professionally, personally. And then what about the dynamic of the team? Because it's the guys, right? And now I'm going to stay. So we had to really meet with them too, to see whether they thought this was even feasible. Once I'd wrapped my head around that this is probably what's going to have to happen to keep him in one piece, piece, then we need to get okay from the guys. So it yeah, once that was a green light, then I went back to my boss. <laughs> I flew home for two weeks. I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm now going away <laughs> and I'm going to mm-hmm. have to give up my job and transition my patients over to somebody else and uh, sublet my, uh, let my apartment, which I did to my cousin so she could take care of my cat. <laughs> and so that part worked and uh, got my shots, and my visas and, you know, and boom, off I went. Okay, so Yay. here's a here's a tricky question. Yay, I know. And thank goodness she said yes. Thank goodness you're a good kidnapper, Rick. Um, <laughs> here's a difficult uh, question, Amanda. How much of it was the handsome guy you had a chemistry with and how much of it was the contagion of his deep sense of purpose and, and what was going on in this tour? So... In order for me to truly embrace and accept that this was my next chapter of my life, I had to um, I had to take a huge risk. And so it couldn't just be about the chemistry of this good-looking guy. I I had to realize that this was in fact a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It was a chance for me to really test my mettle as a therapist, and it was going to be. Um, a, a moment in time for me that I could, I could take a risk. I could think outside the box. I could be uh, uncertain and be okay with that. So, and I'm young, right? I'm you know twenty, turning twenty five. So I'm young and uh, or twenty three, I guess twenty three, because you were you were twenty five. I was 25, you were yeah. 27? Okay. I hope so. <laughs> I don't know. We can look at the, uh, at the history book. I was still young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it, it, was, it was all of it. It was all of it. And, 
And it really became apparent quite early on that the good looking guy was certainly not enough <laughs> to keep me going. Just a, because just a few flaws along was, the way. <laughs> there had to be a lot more to keep me there. Yeah. Well, he was a human being after all. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, what a way to get to know each other uh, under the pressure cooker of uh, the Man in Motion tour. Talk about that. Talk about a crucible. Yeah. You know, like really, I mean, everything was so energized. I mean, we were all struggling in our own way just to try to like put this dream into reality. And there was uh, the organizational logistics and every team member was uh, over their head, stretching beyond every single day. And uh, we were all just trying to catch up to it. And those first few months, it just seemed like every moment was a struggle. So we see each other at our best and worst. Mm-hmm. And so you get to you get to understand someone in a very different way than you would say if you were just dating from time to time. You know, and, and I think we knew right at the beginning, all of us, the whole team, that this was an incredible um, possibility and, and, and an incredible achievement just to even get it launched. And there were long roads where there was nobody around to really see what was going on. And we were fumbling around trying to get this sorted out. And, but there were moments, there were still moments. There were moments where you'd see a kid in a wheelchair at a little community center as we came into a small town in California and you'd go, wow. And you'd see the eyes of that child light up. And it's just one child in one town and we could step out of uh, our own struggling and pain and, and discomfort and realize just how powerful this journey was going to be for not just us personally and for Rick, the accomplishment in itself would be huge, but the impact, you could see it right at the very beginning, even if it wasn't a lot, it wasn't frequent. Um, we often joked it was just as well that we didn't have a lot of people watching us in the early days because we were <laughs> we were a bit of a band of <laughs> I don't know what misfits wow. trying to fit in and um, making Fake. mistakes, faking it till we make it. Try, yeah. to, try to figure it yeah. out. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine though when you talk about seeing a young child in a wheelchair, I can almost picture you seeing the ceiling shattering over their head <laughs> because of what they're witnessing. That's that, Absolutely. and I and I know Rick, you weren't just looking to raise money. That was a big part of your purpose, wasn't it? That awareness piece. Yeah, that was the primary purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, that was what I was exposed to on my own journey, uh, shifting my awareness, my attitude about myself, um, seeing about how awareness and attitudes of society towards me uh, and my colleagues and friends, and, and that my talent and my vision of wheeling around the world could hopefully continue to change perspectives and, uh, and, create awareness and shift attitudes from negative to positive and create hope. And so that's, uh, that's really that when that happened, that's where, that's where it gave us our energy is when, uh, you know, you knew that there was some positive impact going on, you know, in our wake. Otherwise, what was the purpose? Mm-hmm. What was the highlight of the tour for you before you got back to North America? Well, for me, it was wheeling through China, no question. I thought it so. It was unbelievable, you know, to be able to wheel from Beijing to Shanghai and 
and see millions of people being uh, impacted by something so revolutionary in their thinking. People in China mostly thinking that people with disabilities were kind of like almost like second class citizens, shut in, ward of state, no human rights, a bit of embarrassment or burden to family. And now here's a person coming, uh, leading and contributing and showing ability. Uh, it was a, a dramatic concept to grasp, and yet there was a tremendous resonance and welcoming uh, that really inspired us in an unbelievable way. Well, I was going to say your tour really caught fire, I think, in, in China. But I, I can't help but ask, you left, you started out in March, and I believe St. Elmo's Fire came out in June. And when that song, tell me if I'm wrong, it seems to me when that song came out and it was associated with a well-known movie, but it was really about you, did that bring a whole new uh, push to your tour? Did you really make, did you notice a big difference? Yeah, no, I, I can remember we were literally in the motorhome one day when we actually heard it on the radio for the first time. And uh, we were just, you know, pinching ourselves. We'd known about this song. We knew about the movie. We were excited that that had happened. Uh, it was a bit of a celebrity moment for, for everybody. But uh, when we heard it in the motorhome, and we remember screaming out to Rick, you know, he's on, you know, ahead wheeling and we're like, it's on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, getting to somewhere like, well, the, the, the part, the place where it was really quite wild for us is in Portugal. And it was a hit song in Europe um, as well. And um, the, the little organizing committee in, in Portugal were so excited and so enthusiastic. It was actually a country that really sort of got it, you know, gathered together and got very energized by Rick, which was a surprise to us because mm -hmm. most of the European countries have been relatively quiet. But Portugal really made an effort, uh, a big, big effort. And um, the little fellow in the car in front of us had a little loudspeaker on the top of his car and he played St. Elmo's Fire on loop. The whole way <laughs> through Portugal, <laughs> on loop. Going to be your man in motion. They're coming into town, so we we did have a bit of a, a a period of time where we heard the song enough <laughs> at that point because it. But but we knew how excited they were that they had this theme song and it was about Rick and oh my gosh. Okay, clearly this conversation is not over. Just wait till you hear the rest. Tune in next episode for part two of this incredible Canadian love story. Thanks so much for listening to the Canadian Love Map. If you love us, please subscribe and share. We'll be back next week with another love story to add to the map. This podcast is presented and made possible by Charm Diamond Centers. It's hosted by me, Nancy Regan, and is produced and distributed by Podstarter.